I've been really moved by Zosima's meditations on memory, and I've been thinking about the the other ways that memory has a rejuvenating effect on us, ways that are particularly relevant to us here at WCC, or I guess spread out uh, to WCC as we are right now. In his poems, Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, Wordsworth talks about the way that the memory of this beautiful landscape that he's seeing before him has brought him emotional tranquility in the midst of life in the city. He says, mid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them, the memories he means there, in hours of weariness, sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart and passing even into my pure mind with tranquil restoration. This recollection of a beautiful experience in nature restores his tranquility amidst the din and weariness. This sounds similar to the way that memory functions for, for Zosima, memory of a sacred moment from childhood, restores and rejuvenates and, and guides in, in the midst of distress and confusion. And I think that, that actually is really relevant for us right now in, in the midst of all of this confusion and, and distress and turmoil to, in a sense, retreat into our memories, the memories that we have Wordsworth is really talking about the memories of, of the beauty of nature. And that seems to be a way perhaps of using or of uniting, um, integrating uh, Brothers K and, and nature and uh, yeah, our outdoor program and, and perhaps making the outdoor program, drawing nourishment from the outdoor program, from your time in the outdoors. Um, right now when you aren't really engaged in the outdoors, at least not in the same way that you're, that you're used to. Um, I was also thinking about the way that just as nature can create these memories for us that nourish, that restore, that rejuvenate, that fiction also does the same thing. Zosima mentions, of course, the, the story of Job. And he also urges his audience to read children's stories of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Joseph, Esther, uh, Jonah, the parables from Luke, Saul's conversion, the lives of the saints there. And I think that we could also add to that works of fiction that create for us memories that, that shape our souls, memories that in the years to come, we can come back, we come back to, and it actually has this transformative effect on, on us. I think that Brothers K is one of those novels. It's one of these novels that, that seeps into your memory and that you can come back to and find it to be inspiring. And certainly from my previous readings of the Brothers K, this has been true. I carry the memory of Zosima's understanding of active love with me, and there actually have been concrete moments in my life when I have remembered this idea of active love. And that memory has actually been encouraging, has actually led to a resolution of will. So this novel has become a sacred memory. It strikes me that so much of your time at WCC has, I think, been collecting these sacred memories, whether it be 
out in nature or uh, in the works that you're reading. Um, and, and obviously, you all are seniors now, and so your time is coming to an end here. I know not exactly in the way that you want it. But it seems uh, appropriate to reflect on those memories and, and to start deliberately to cull those memories, to, to curate those memories, or to sort of gather them together. Wordsworth talks about the mind as, he says, a mansion for all lovely forms. Thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies. This is not the only way to think about the purpose of education. But I think it is a high and noble way of thinking about the purpose of education, which is the filling up of the mansion of the mind with these beautiful forms, whether those beautiful forms be right from nature, from scripture, from, from the great books uh, that, that you're reading uh, from quarantine, perhaps. But filling up the mansion of your mind with these memories so that, so that later you can come back to them and they are powerfully effective in, in the way that you actually that you actually live your life. So I think this is a very real way for um, education to affect the kind of person that you become and the way that you choose to live your life. Okay, so uh, enough preaching. Let's move on to book eight. Or... Uh, I like to think about it, uh, the book in which murder finally happens, sort of, because we don't actually see what happens. We just see those ellipses. And the book in which Dimitri runs around confusing everybody in an actually, I think, pretty comic way. Just think about the, pe the, the drunk peasant uh, and the gold mines with Madame K. So in book seven, we see Alyosha torn between Ivan and Zosima. And he, he eventually embraces his Zosimian mission with help from Grushenka and her onion. Just as Zosima kisses the earth joyfully, Alyosha kisses the earth joyfully. And I love, I love the joy in these kisses. The grain of wheat that falls and dies suggests that suffering is essential for fruitfulness. And we'll, we will definitely see that, that, that this is true, especially for Dimitri. But there is also a joyful falling, a falling that embraces the goodness of all life. There are, there, there are tears of joy, uh, not just tears of sorrow. And in, in book seven, Alyosha's love for Zosima is regenerated and he is sent out into the world. But at the beginning of book seven, we learn that this love for Zosima was so consuming for Alyosha, he actually forgets his brother Dimitri. And book eight focuses in on this forgotten brother, who's been forgotten by both Ivan and Alyosha. Um, are you my brother's keeper? Right? Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, Ivan asks, of course, right? in, an echo, in an echo of Cain there. So, so there's a sense in which Dimitri has been abandoned. So right, what do we see about Dimitri in book eight? Well, the forgotten brother, we learn, thirsted for this resurrection and renewal. Dimitri longs for new life. He longs to be reborn. Indeed, all his rushing around in book eight is an attempt to find this resurrection and renewal. He wants to find money to, to repay Katerina so that he and Grushenka can go out and find this resurrection together. Of course, Dmitri doesn't really know how money is earned. 
doesn't really think great, of course, of getting a job. He's looking for an immediate solution. The slow toil of the gold mines does not appeal to Dmitri. And he naively believes, quote, if only one could fly away from this cursed place, then everything would be reborn. Resurrection for Dmitri at this point just means a change in geography. He thinks that he, if he can simply escape his current condition and be with Krushenka, then, quote, a completely new Grushenka would, at once, would begin at once. And together with her, a completely new Dmitry Fyodorovich, with no vices now, but with virtues only. Dmitry here imagines, imagines immediate regeneration, as if virtue comes all in a single moment, which is absurdly optimistic for this man who is full of base desires. But, quote, for all, for with all his vices, this was a very simple-hearted man. I think there's something really profoundly relatable about Dimitri's sense that if we can just change locations, then everything will be all right. But if I can just escape the, situ the current situation that I am in, then I know that I'll be a better person. I'll have this immediate transformation. That's what's holding me back. Of course, Dimitri does not obtain this immediate resurrection. His efforts to find the money to pay back Katerina fail, not surprisingly. And instead of redemption and renewal, he chooses to run down the back lanes and jump fences. We're told as he makes his way to Fyodor Pavlovich's house, quote, he ran down a lane making a long detour around Fyodor Pavlovich's house, ran along Mitrovsky Street, then ran across the footbridge and came straight to the solitary back lane, empty and uninhabited. These back lanes are problematic. Dmitri is not entering through the front lane, but through through the back. There's an element of um, transgression here. There's an element of uh, sneakiness here in, in choosing these, these back lanes, right? Of um, illegitimacy. We're not going, he's not going through the proper ways or the main ways, but going through these back ways. And we actually see him hop a fence, right? He hops the, the fence into his father's, into his father's garden. Hops the fence actually like stinking Lizaveta. And Dimitri even thinks about stinking Lizaveta when he hops the fence. And the memory of her success inspires him in a moment that suggests memory is not always sacred. She says, well, stinking Lizaveta, pregnant, could jump this fence. I too can jump this fence. Um, really, Dimitri should not be jumping these fences. Uh, his intention here is profoundly problematic. I'm actually reminded of Milton Satan, who also hops the fence of paradise rather, rather than going through, through the gate, uh, who also transgresses the proper ways of entry. Dmitri also deceives his father in this moment by using the signal that Smerdikov taught him. He knocks out the signal that indicates that Grushenka is, is here in, in, in a kind of satanic way, right? That Satan deceives deceives Eve, taking on the guise of the serpent, lying to her. We also see Dimitri going after the father, just as Satan opposes the father. Dimitri rises up in, in profound hatred against his father. You know, even the word or the phrase Adam's apple is mentioned twice in, in this book here. So there seems to be I think a lot of 
references to the fall in Dimitri's decision to go after his father. But we don't actually see what happens in this moment. Right? So this is the moment, in a sense, to which the whole novel has been building. Father Zosima has bowed to Dimitri's great suffering mysteriously at the beginning. Rakuten has suggested that murder is going to happen, that something, something violent is coming. Alyosha has some sense that Dimitri is in crisis and he's going to come, or that you know he needs to go to him. Um, right? So this has been building and building, and we know from the very beginning of the novel, from the first page, the, the tragic death of Fyodor Pavlovich is coming. And here, last, but then it breaks away. And we get those ellipses. And then the next, the next lines are, God was watching over me then, Mitya used to say afterwards. So we don't actually see what happens to Fyodor here in this moment. Dostoevsky leaves us in, in mystery. We do see Dmitri attack Grigory and leave him for dead. Quote, if I've killed him, I've killed him. Dmitri thinks in panic and rushes away, covered in Grigory's blood. So Dimitri's desire for resurrection and rebirth utterly fails in this book. He doesn't become a totally new Dimitri. And instead, he chooses this satanic jumping over fences, this sneaking through back lanes, this at least certainly this assault on Gregory, this leaving Gregory for dead. This is where Dimitri is. Uh, he, he cannot actually become a completely new Dimitri on his own. Now, after this, after uh, the attack on Grigory, Dimitri then behaves very, very oddly. He goes to retrieve his pistols from Piotr Ilrich, and he keeps assuring him he, that he loves life. He's not going to kill himself. But Dimitri has, uh, he asks Piotr for a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper, he writes, quote, for my whole life, I punish myself. I punish my whole life. This idea of self-punishment, I, I think, is, is somewhat new for Dimitri and really important. Is it akin to Zosima's exhortation to take on the sins of all? Or maybe it's just a shadow of that reality? Is it some kind of beginning for Dimitri here? This some sense of taking on, on punishment for himself? Maybe. But Dimitri seems to understand, seems to mean this punishment as suicide, which is what he keeps hinting at. At one point, he actually even used the language of fence jumping to describe his suicidal plans. He tells Fenya, quote, There is a fence here, a high fence, and fearful to look at. But tomorrow at dawn, when the sun soars aloft, Tenka will jump over that fence. The fence here in this image seems to be something like the barrier between life and death. It's a terrible barrier, but Dimitri plans to jump it, I think, as an act of self-punishment. So taking on a sense of guilt and responsibility is a very Zosimian notion, but self-destruction is not. So Dimitri here is sort of moving towards something, but it's, it, it, it's only partial. It's confused. I think it's kind of strange that Dimitri wants to jump this fence at dawn. Early morning, if you remember, was also the time of day that Zosima planned to have his duel and the time when he realizes the error of his own ways. 
So dawn is a time of startling insight and resurrection. But here in this book, it's the time when Dimitri is going to go kill himself. But in the same book, Dimitri also sees this light as a sign of life. He says, quote, I love life. I love golden-haired Phoebus and his light. This seems to be his version of Yvonne's sticky little leaves. Neither Dimitri nor Yvonne can, can fully relinquish their love of life. That is, I think, actually seen in Dimitri's resolution to kill himself at dawn. There is simul- there's this, uh, right, simultaneously in him, this impulse for self-destruction to kill himself, but also this zest for life, going to do it at, at dawn. And given the elderly Zosima's love of the setting sun, I think it is striking how frequently right, Dimitri mentions the rising sun all throughout this chapter, right? So not just this, uh, it, he doesn't just plan to kill himself at dawn. References to dawn actually appear in other moments in this chapter. Um, and I think this, this suggests, again, this, the sort of halfway state of Dimitri. He's maybe moving towards a Zosimian uh, sense of the world, but but he's not quite there yet. He loves he loves the dawn. He loves Phoebus. He doesn't really yet love uh, the setting sun, which is for Zosima mild and tender. It's a way that memory has softened grief right, into something transformative. Dimitri isn't really there yet. He hasn't experienced um, that kind of attachment to to the setting sun. He hasn't yet even really experienced resurrection in the rising sun. So he has these Zeusimian potentialities, but he's still thinking about jumping fences. So Dimitri in this book, Midway, or maybe not even quite midway, but kind of moving towards Zosima. And he's also linked to Alyosha in striking ways in this book. The night that he goes to Grishenka, this is after the fence jumping uh, in the garden, the Miltonic fence jumping. The same night that Dmitri goes to Grishenka is, is the night that Alyosha actually falls to the ground. So there seems to be a suggestion that going to Grishenka is part of Dmitri's resurrection, as it was part of Alyosha's. Indeed, we see this in the chapter Delirium. Dmitri prays, quote, God, restore him who was struck down at the fence. Again, the mention of the fence keeps coming back. Right? This image of transgression, of violation, of improper entrance. Dmitri says, let this terrible cup pass from me. You're an echo of Christ suggesting that his torment is more than just self-punishment. You worked miracles, O Lord, for sinners just like me. And what? What if the old man is alive? Well, then I'll remove the shame of the remaining disgrace. I will return the stolen money. I'll get it back. I'll dig it somewhere. There will be no trace of shame left except forever in my heart. But no, oh no, faint-hearted, impossible dreams, oh damnation. Damnation is surely uh, a curse, but the mention of it is significant in this context. Dimitri thinks it's impossible for this miracle to take place. And then, quote, yet it was as if a ray of some bright hope shone on him in the darkness. He tore away 
and rushed inside to her, to her again, his queen forever. Grushenka here functions as Dmitri's light, pulling him out of damnation and bringing him hope. This seems to be a kind of echo, uh, um, a, a replaying of Grushenka offering the, the onion to Alyosha. So just as Grushenka offers Alyosha a path, right, path back into the light, she seems to also here be at least possibly functioning in that way for, for Dimitri too. I think that gives us hope for, for, for Dimitri. And yet, for all the partial parallels with Zosima and Alyosha, the book ends with Dimitri's arrest. Dimitri's hope for immediate resurrection, rebirth, and new life is thwarted. It's certainly not complete. He does not, at the end of this book, rise up from the earth like a strong fighter. So I'm, you know, I'm left wondering why, why does Alyosha's resurrection come so quickly and, and Dimitri's not? What is it that Dimitri needs for resurrection? 